I would trade out this giant North American Mission Board, board mug for an uncommentary mug in a heartbeat if somebody ever did. <clears throat> Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian, where the podcast explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Today on the podcast, I have invited uh, some friends who, well, we're actually in a text group. We've all been pastors or are currently pastoring or on staff at a church or uh, involved in some way in uh, ministry, whether um, uh, multivocational uh, or otherwise. And we're missing one uh, of our fellows, and that's uh, because he has a day job. And so wouldn't wouldn't going to be very easy to get him uh, loose and hooked up with us. So we'll do this again, and we'll get him on. We'll kind of record it in the evening. But we take up a subject. There was a um, there's been around at least in Southern Baptist circles, and it's probably even some narrow circles of that group. Some debate about social justice or issues of justice, and uh, um, how that's viewed in the large um, in in reference to the larger. Uh, framework of Christian conversation and uh, whether it's other denominations or other groups or other the, uh, those who view it differently. And, uh, and so we decided to get together and, and kind of have a conversation about it. We've had uh, a back and forth in our little text message group and, and thought, you know, maybe it'd be nice. Maybe some want to know uh, uh, some observations just for nobody's have uh, about uh, these issues. And um, mainly about how we have discourse over disagreement and some observations we've made uh, about that. And and then we're going to do follow it up with uh, uh, some positive suggestions. So this is more critique. And then the next uh, episode that we'll put together, we'll, we'll have some, some suggestions uh, for some ways forward, at least as we see it. Not that we're anybody, but we did have microphones, an internet connection, and uh, a podcast. So uh, without further ado, uh, my friends uh, Marty, Stewart, and Alan join me on this episode of Pathological. We'll have some more updates on the other side. So for now, here's our conversation. If there ever was a time to get a few guys together who sit around and text each other all day and don't do anything else, it would be for a podcast. And so today... um, uh, coming out of the dark are my uh, my friends uh, Alan Cross, Marty Duran, and Stuart Sumrall. And uh, unfortunately, Paul Littleton is has a real job. The rest of us don't, and he's working today, or he would be uh, joining us. So, in the future, we'll have to do this in the evening, and we can get him uh, on on with us. Uh, so, just some quick introductions. If you if you guys would take just a second and tell us something about yourselves, maybe what you do, and uh, then we'll go from there. My name is Alan Cross, and I'm a hat model. <laughs> All right, that was Marty Duran. Marty, tell us something about you, man. <laughs> uh, my name is Marty Duran. I live in Nashville. Uh, longtime pastor, uh, podcaster, blogger, dude. Uh, currently the host of the Uncommentary podcast, and uh, I write some and don't have a full-time job. So since I don't, I'm on this podcast at 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> All right. Stuart. Yeah. 
Man, uh, been a pastor, been a missionary, currently a minister of missions, live in Dallas, Texas. I don't model Tam O'Shanter hats, but, uh, you know. Well, since maybe, you made your, maybe since one day. The hat, we probably ought to have a hat introduce himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a hat, and, and that's the topic <laughs> of, of, of discussion. Um, uh, probably because I don't have a lot of hair underneath there. So, um, yeah. Did I'm you borrow out. that hat from Marty? Because he has one. No, I, I have several a, like that. I got it at a thrift store, actually. Um, I didn't do that. Yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, my name is Alan Cross, and I, uh, I'm a longtime uh, former pastor in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, and uh, now work as a, on behalf of immigrants and refugees throughout the Southeast. I'm on staff with the Montgomery Baptist Association as a missional strategist and kind of uh, travel around working with the Evangelical Immigration Table and, um, and, uh, uh, some other um, emphasis uh, on trying to create a better discussion on immigration from a biblical perspective. So, and also work a lot on, on racial reconciliation stuff. Well, thanks, guys. And I'm glad you had some time to from your busy schedules to uh, get on uh, the old Zoom call and, and uh, have a little conversation. And, and for those of you listening, and if you're a regular listener of Pathological, um, you may wonder how this particular conversation fits. But we try to uh, talk about the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. And every now and then, there's an issue that comes up that the the five of us um, share um, uh, articles, thoughts, ideas about maybe something that's going on, something that's current. And in some cases, it relates to our denomination and some of the things that are happening there. And, uh, and so, I want to, by way of introduction, uh, I want to. Um, use a line from David Fitch. Uh, David teaches at Northern Seminary, and he's got a new book coming out this summer, and uh, the publisher changed the title. Can't remember what it was going to be, but uh, his his title has been changed to Us Versus Them, and um, he's got a three-part podcast that uh, outlines what's going on in the book, and he has this line that says that... Um, the Bible has become an enemy-making machine. Now, he doesn't say that it's done it on its own. He thinks we have done that, that is, Christians have made the Bible an enemy-making machine. And recently, this has been uh, evidenced in a, um, a video that circulated of the Shepherd Conference put on by John MacArthur. And he had uh, a series of guests on uh, Al Mohler, Lake Duncan, Sinclair Ferguson, and then um, his prodigy, Phil Johnson, and then the, uh, the uh, ever-aging John MacArthur. And in a, in a particular Q&A, the, the issue that... Never, never aging or ever-aging? I said ever-aging. Ever-aging. What, what, what came up was this issue that has been kind of circulating in certain segments of evangelical Christianity, and in particular, it's been divisive uh, among some in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's the relationship between the gospel and justice. And if there's anything that I think would illustrate what Fitch is talking about is, is that the, the way the Bible has been used by both sides of this to really create sort of um, enemy-making relationships. And so that's that's something that uh, uh, Fitch has drawn out. Uh, he he does it about the Bible, salvation, the church. It's it's really a, a good three-part series podcast. His book's probably, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it without reading it, going to be really worth uh, checking out and getting into. 
because I thought that that might be a good illustration that what has kind of confounded us is, is that this Bible that we've all read since we were young, that we've been committed to preaching and exegeting uh, along the way, has become such a tool that um, uh, we've, we've divided up and we get uh, uh, folks picking sides, choosing sides uh, around the issue of our involvement in society and culture in the world. And so a uh, group got together and issued the uh, uh, social justice statement. Any of you read that? It's been a while. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I read the whole uh, the whole thing, Stuart. That is an enormous mug, dude. Isn't that great? That is, that you could get. Is that like, like a hot tub? You know what that is, guys? Yes, yeah, that's an Annie though. Armstrong freebie right there. Oh, there you go. There you go. We'll yeah, put so that I, in the footnotes. By the way, it. for those of you who are not Southern Baptists, don't know what Annie Armstrong is. <laughs> it is our it is our subtle tip of the hat to women, since we don't really think much about our, our mission offerings. Um, Marty, would you give us a quick rundown? Uh, you you read the social justice statement, all of it. Give us a quick kind of what what's what's at work there? Yeah. So uh, as I understand from reading it and a couple of the ancillary uh, articles, uh, a pastor in Georgia named Josh Bice got um, concerned about some things that he was seeing. He hooked up with several other pastors, uh, including uh, Tom Askell and then Phil Johnson, who I don't think Phil's a pastor, but he's associated with John MacArthur. Uh, and then there were one or two others. And uh, and so they kind of put their heads together to try to formulate a statement, essentially, uh, that addresses social justice and the gospel. I think the full the full title is the social justice and the gospel statement, I think, or statement on social justice and the gospel. Regardless, they all met, I think, in Dallas. And this is all public information. This is like online. Um, then I think Tom Askell wrote like the draft and or maybe Josh wrote the draft. And then they kind of you know worked on the language. And then they published it online, and you can find it at socialjusticestatement.com, I think is the URL. Um, and it's it's a series of we affirm and we deny statements. I'm sure there's a model. I don't know the model, but I'm sure there is one. It's, it's common. There's a, an intro, and then there's, I think, 12 articles of uh, affirmation and denial, something like that, and then maybe a conclusion. Um, and so um, I haven't read all the scripture that they cite to in support of their affirmations and denials. Um, but uh, I just remember when I read it, there were certain things that I was like, okay, I could go with that. And there were other things like, mm, I don't, I'm not confident about the wording of that. It seems to, it, it seems to not express clearly enough how I would say it for me to sign on. So I didn't sign it. I, I mean, I didn't run any kind of campaign against it. I just didn't sign it. And apparently I wasn't the only one because the, the panel you referenced included Mark Dever, uh, Ligon Duncan and Al Mohler, who also did not sign it. And that was kind of the, tension on the stage there yeah well alan you're you're probably uh of all of us the one poor, probably most directly involved in what might be considered a uh, uh, an engagement with with culture around a particular subject and and its relationship to the gospel when you do your work with uh uh, immigrate evangelical immigration table and and you meet with groups you, you you really probably you really do this as well when you when you do your Montgomery tours you know you you doing you're doing a lot there so from from you've read you've read the SJS I think is it's shorthand um, what what would you say characterizes the overall kind of positioning so if, if this group's going to position themselves in relationship to Christian involvement in the social order or in culture, where, where would you locate them 
uh, along that spectrum. I, I, I read it when it first came out and uh, I didn't go into nearly the depth that, that Marty did um, as, as, as far as like kind of internalizing it. Um, so I, I don't remember all of it, but, but uh, kind of my general impression of it was, was that it was, it was, um, you know, just kind of using some caricatures of, of, of social justice or the ideas that are, are put forward perhaps on the left or the far left, and then kind of applying those definitions or those objections that they would have that maybe others of us would also share as well, and then kind of laying that over everyone who's talking about justice, even from a biblical perspective. So, so even if you're like, you know, trying to be as biblical as you can be, you know, really grounding yourself in scripture, you know, really talking about the implications of the gospel in the larger, uh, in the larger social sphere um, on issues of race and justice and, you know, things like that. And saying that, you know, while this isn't the gospel, while people don't get saved by, by trying to, to, uh, you know, curtail the effects of racism and, and, uh, um, you know, the rest that have been created in our society through that, um, we still think that, that the church has something to say there and that we can bring healing and hope and restoration, you know, to people and individuals and in society. Um, it seemed like that they were kind of taking uh, extremes or, or things that we might all disagree with and then applying it to anyone who's trying to work on justice issues at all, even from a biblical perspective. And that's where I had my largest objection. And, and everything that has come out around the statement the comments that have been made by uh, proponents of the statement, everything that's happened afterwards on Twitter and in, um, in you know in discussions has only has only buttressed that view that I've had. That that even when I stand in Montgomery, Alabama, and give tours to people of of the sites where civil rights and civil war events happened and where you know were real ugly, nasty um, injustices took place at, at the slave market and things like that, and I try to do that from a very biblical view. Even in doing that, the feeling that I get from from people like Tom Askell, who I know personally and others, is that I'm somehow in error by standing in a place and saying that slavery was wrong. Um, not that they would ever say that. They would never say that slavery was right. But just the overall approach that they give or when I talk about children and families at the border or any of these things that are going on about how we should treat people. The impression that I'm getting from these folks is that we shouldn't talk about any of that. We should only talk about how people get saved and about church and church discipline and how a church functions and, and all that. So that's the overall impression I get, whether they intended that or not, whether you know they can find a line that would get them off the hook for that being their intention. That's to me what they've been communicating. And that's where I would object. Yeah. I wonder, Stuart, if um, yeah. maybe as a, a missionary having, uh, having served in uh, South America, um, how, how this sort of conversation kind of bubbles around in your mind when when we start thinking about all the sorts of training, uh, uh, kind of cultural uh, f- awareness and familiarity, the connections that we try to make in those cultures with the gospel. How, how do you see um, the idea that Alan just described that, that well, you know, really what you need is a, is a megaphone on a street corner and you need to you know, uh, uh, preach an evangelistic sermon, um, and, and don't worry about the poverty that you see, uh, don't worry about the family breakdown that, that you know is going on, don't, don't worry about uh, any systems or structures that um, right. seem to be obstacles. What's, what's kind of your response from that vantage point? Okay, let me back up first. I want to just chime in also on the, the statement. Uh, sure. It's been, I don't even know when it came out. Stay in your lane, Stay in your lane. 
in your lane, bro. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I I don't even remember when I read it. When it came out, how many, however many months ago that's been now, Marty may know. Uh, I didn't read it as a good faith effort at all to uh, accurately represent the arguments of the evangelicals they were claiming to have written the statement uh, to sort of counter, mm. you know, uh, their, as I understood it, their intention was to say, okay, evangelicals are jumping on this justice bandwagon. We better just rein that in right now uh, because these evangelicals are starting to speak to, to justice. Um, and we know where that can lead. And so, if they were trying to speak to evangelicals, I did not see a good faith representation of, of, uh, of what those evangelicals who speak in favor of justice are saying or doing. Uh, so I thought they sort of made this, this caricature of um, what they perceive justice to be and what that might look like in the broader culture you know, as it relates to political correctness and these sorts of things. And then they put that view upon these guys who are their brothers in Christ. So, um, you know, that was my original thought is why I haven't given it much thought since is I don't see here a good faith effort to, uh, to represent what it is they're supposed to be against. So I'm not going to give it a whole lot more thought and time. So that was kind of my thought at the time. Well, let's pause the, let's pause. We'll come back to kind of yeah, my bad. missional, no, no, we'll, uh, to missional perspective. Let's pick up on what you said. So what seems to be in what, what you guys have read or, or, or um, considered, what seems to be one of the most common caricatures or as you describe it, uh, what they overlaid on their brothers uh, and sisters in, that, that seem to be more involved, that they're, they're trying to kind of separate themselves from. What's kind of what are some what's one or or, or two of, of the more significant sort of um, pejorative uh, descriptions given uh, for quote that other side, if you will? Well, the big boogeyman, of course, is homosexuality, ordination of homosexuals, homosexual marriage, and uh, they would argue, I suppose, that it's a slippery slope, and that if you start. Um, if you start banging the justice drum on some of these other issues, mass incarceration, you know, uh, treatment of people at the border, treatment of immigrants, et cetera, whatever it may be, uh, then you're on this slippery slope that's inevitably going to lead you to uh, to acceptance of these things. I think all evangelicals uh, would say the Bible is clearly against. And so um, I think that's the big boogeyman that they kept saying, OK, if you go here, then you're inevitably going to go there. That was clear, and, uh, that was clearly stated to me on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I think it was last week. Mm. Uh, the same. This was it, this is a paraphrase. Uh, the the same arguments that I see for people who uh, changed their mind about justice issues are the same arguments I see about people who now affirm uh, LBGTQ um, doctrine or whatever. And that's a loose that's a loose translation, but right. that is a. That is the connect the connection that Stewart's uh, hypothesizing was directly stated to me on Twitter uh, last week. Well, and the other thing too, you know, that they are bringing up is, is cultural Marxism. You know, they're throwing that around. Um, this idea that that uh, you know Marxist uh, ideology 
uh, trying to go through the economic and political sphere failed. And now uh, there's been this big conspiracy that has now moved into, into the cultural realm and is trying to attack the church. And the way that they use the term, I, I haven't read any of them who know anything about what they're talking about. It's very obvious to me that they read something on Wikipedia and now they're blasting people with it. That's one thing. Two, when you ask any of them a question about any of it, um, they don't answer you. Um, right. who, who are you talking about? What do you mean? Can you give us an example? And they go completely silent and they don't even respond. And then you'll see them attacking somebody else. And these are pastors. These are church leaders that are laying massive um, accusation against the body of Christ and will not respond to any question about who are you talking about? What do you mean? Give us an example. And then they'll just go to attack somebody else. So they're using terms they don't understand. They're using things that they're picking up in popular, um, uh, you know, it's actually, you know, showing up in all right websites and places like that, to be honest with you. And then they're um, attacking the body of Christ and they won't respond to any questions about what they mean. And then they just keep going. And to me, that is what Stuart's talking about is a bad faith approach. Yeah, let, let, let's, we're going to pick that up. But, but since we, I don't think any of us really kind of think the, uh, uh, Slippery slope fallacy is one to uh, execute good uh, exegesis and exposition on, and we don't think that's probably a really good way to kind of think about uh, issues. We're just going to kind of slide right over the slippery slope issue, and and I think the the uh, what what Alan what you brought up that uh, this reference to cultural Marxism. So have you done y'all done any kind of you know read any you, 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 what have, what have you kind of come up with that that, um, you know, the average person, the average pastor who might listen to this podcast, who's kind of heard that thrown around and, and picked up sides like Alan, you said, without actually reading anything, you know, what, what, what are some uh, either sources or what, what have, what have you looked into to that, that you'd dispel or you'd draw the conclusion you did that this is really a, not a very good faith gesture by using terminologies, uh, that likely are not really clearly understood and um, using them as uh, tools to be divisive over. Well, uh, I'll say I'm not an expert on any kind of Marxism uh, at all. Uh, my first engagement with the phrase cultural Marxism was online. Uh, it was being used as a pejorative against, uh, very specifically, I'll say it was being used against Russell Moore uh, the head of the Ethics and Relig Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and more than one person was using it. The source that was using it is a person that is 175% uh, not trustworthy. Uh, you can't trust them to tell the truth. You can't trust them to know the truth. Uh, and so I had a little, you know, spider sense tingling over uh, who was using that phrase and against whom it was being used. Uh, and so just trying <clears throat> for myself, just watching it, uh, it was used as kind of a catch-all for, uh, and whoever mentioned the alt-right uh, in, in the last couple of minutes, uh, that's a source of it being used as a, and in their usage, as I have come to hopefully understand it accurately, uh, it goes to the browning of America. So cultural Marxism is trying to diminish the influence of the white race in America. That's the alt-right usage. Uh, and that's why they're against immigration. And so since then, for instance, Russ Moore has a, uh, a position on immigration that in my view is a more biblical understanding of how we should face that particular issue, uh, which uh, to them indicates this uber leftist, you know, weirdness of trying to white genocide everybody or something. Uh, 
Um, and so from that, uh, it just became clear that most of the people using cultural Marxism are getting it from sources that aren't steeped in it. Jordan, Jordan Peterson is another example, uh, the Canadian psychologist dude, who uh, is very, very popular with a certain swath of, uh, of evangelicals. And I don't get it. Uh, I, don't, I don't get his popularity. I don't get his teachings is accurate. But he's another one who warns about cultural Marxism. So the interesting thing is, the Marxists that you run across or the people who've actually studied Marxism, uh, they don't use cultural Marxism in that way. And they certainly don't think cultural Marxism, and I'm air quoting here, is a thing uh, in, in the United States. Um, I'll send you a link of a story that we passed around, the one by uh, Andrew Lynn uh, in the Hedgehog Review. I'll send you a link that you can put on the your post on this. But uh, suffice it to say that the people who've actually studied Marx and the people who've actually been studying the usage of cultural Marxism over the, over you know decades or whatever, they don't see what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention as, in an effort to welcome the foreigner uh, as cultural Marxism. You know, well, you you mentioned that article, and then and um, trying to remember, the Gospel Coalition came out with a it was really awkwardly written, but it was an interview piece uh, um, uh, between let's see, Robinson did the interviewing, and Michael Haken was the the guy interviewed. And he clearly talks about his own foray as a young man into Marxism. And clearly at the end, uh, it says, yeah, this isn't a thing. Uh, we, we've passed around an article uh, about uh, something David French had said. And, and he's, he, you know, he's uh, addressing one of the particular uh, usages to say, you know, really it's more of a, a perspective rather than uh, an agenda. Um, at least as he saw it. So um, I know that, that Alan and Stuart did some reading, I think a little bit on some of that background, some of where that language has come from. One of you guys want to jump in maybe with some something there? Yeah, I mean... Uh, oh, both at the same time. It's okay. It's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you trace the term back, um, it goes back to, uh, you know, Germany in the 1930s um, with, with uh, attacks on cultural... A Bolshevism, which was really an anti-Semitic um, move, and uh, and the uh, uh, the support of the Herrenvolk, you know, um, and then you get into blood and soil ideology in a in a Nazi Germany, and so you know, not to say that anybody's saying cultural Marxism is a Nazi. I, I mean, let's let's not cast that aspersion. But I'm saying these ideas have origins, and then they spread, and then people pick them up, and then they get translated through different you know lenses and filters, and and people don't even know where they come from, you know, and what they're trying to say, and what is it exactly. I'm, I've had people on the left, um, you know, laugh and tell me that we don't even like. You know, this is a myth. This isn't even something that anyone's trying to do. And even if it is, even if there is this vast, you know, leftist conspiracy to try to infiltrate, uh, you know, in a Marxist type way to to create the dissolution of the West. Um, you know, for those of us who have been digging in scripture for years um, from when, you know, I was doing street ministry, um, you know, with homeless people to, you know, just the, the work that I've done and the work that, and, and, and no one's attacked me for this. I'm not, you know, you know, trying to take a person. I'm just applying, you know, this whole thing. But there are so many people that I know who care about justice issues from a really strong biblical perspective. And that's, you know, like if there is even this other thing happening with whatever a cultural, you know, Marxism is, basic Christian charity requires you not to take that and then lay it over every Christian ministry 
who is really rooted in scripture trying to do what the Bible tells us to do. That is the part that really to me is offensive. And I think that that's where these guys are really in error and they need to make sure that they make the distinctions that need to be made. Instead, they're lumping it all together as a big conspiracy. And then they're accusing people of stuff. And a lot of us are just learning about this by their accusations. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not even our motivation at all. Um, and again, I'm not saying that they're including me, but I, but I am seeing people that they are including that I identify with and I've talked to. And I know what their motivation is. It's not, you know, it isn't some Marxist thing. It's trying to fulfill what the Bible says to do. So. That's right. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Y'all know I'm a nerd. So when I started seeing this word, this term popping up everywhere, family members even, did you know so-and-so is a cultural Marxist? <laughs> I started looking for primary sources. You know, I'm like, let me let me trace this thing back as far as I can. Now, I'm no expert, obviously. But uh, there are experts, you know, and they trace it back to uh, what the Frankfurt School, right? That's the that's the group of uh, Jewish philosophers who fled Nazi Germany and came to the United States, you know, I guess sometime between World War I and World War II. Uh, and there's a, uh, a fellow by the name of Martin Jay, and I can't remember where he's a professor, but uh, somewhere in California. He is... Uh, still very involved in the research and the study of the Frankfurt school. And uh, so I said, let me start reading some of what this guy says. And so uh, he traces the term back to an early 1990s article uh, where, man, y'all forgive me here, where some fella, Michael Minichino, who was writing on behalf of the Schiller Institute, uh, was the first coinage of the term that anybody found. Now, the Schiller Institute, I don't know anything about them, but from best I can tell, uh, they, they're about wanting a renaissance of the renaissance. They look at things that have happened since, you know, uh, maybe, maybe since the turn of the 20th century as taking us back into a new dark age, if you will. Uh, they're particularly um, critical of modern art, modern architecture, et cetera, things like this. So he's writing this article originally with that in mind from that standpoint. And I don't even know how that all relates or, or, or what happened between the, the early nineties and the late nineties where uh, political conservatives air quoting again, uh, got a hold of this term, how they even found it in his very obscure article on the new dark ages uh, and began using it. I don't know exactly. Um, but Paul Weirich and William Wynn are the two, names you're going to find most associated with the coinage of the term in uh, modern or contemporary usage and uh, Pat Buchanan also, you know, and so, uh, what's that, that? Gets, that, that helps us out right there. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're so, wanting to you know, in with some intellectual prowess that would really get you there. Well, and so, okay. Pat Buchanan used it as the basis for his book in what, 2001 or two, the death of the West, which was basically anti-immigration and, uh, not just anti-illegal immigration, Alan can speak to this, but also about a decline or a drop in numbers of legal immigrants as well. Uh, why Lynn and Weirich got involved in this, you know, uh, from a moral majority sort of uh, culture warrior standpoint, from what I can tell, they, they associate this Frankfurt School with extreme political correctness. And then... Uh, they just kind of run with it from there. Uh, um, you know, that it is this 
it is the uh, the fruit, if you will, of this Frankfurt School that has led us through uh, the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, the decline of of uh, Judeo-Christian moral ethics, the rise of multi, you know, multiculturalism, the rise of uh, the lack of objective truth, et cetera, et cetera. And they were Jews. Now, having said all of that, yeah, and, and they were Jews, which is why I think the alt-right probably loves this stuff. But be that as it may, having said all that, I'm going to go back to something Alan said. Even if there are philosophers who wish to deconstruct the Judeo-Christian ethic as we know it that built Western civilization, according to these guys, even if that's out there, even if there's a coterie of philosophers who've been sort of advancing this for 50, 60 years, whatever it is, um, that doesn't automatically translate to the fact that Christians who are writing about justice in biblical terms, using biblical references, using Jesus and the prophets and the who, law as their model, it, it doesn't translate that these guys are in fact cultural Marxists as well in the same sense as these these uh, these German philosophers. So, or, or just trying to uh, to uh, find scriptures to prop up these secular philosophies that they've somehow yeah. accidentally bought into. And don't forget about the intersectionality because that's in there too. Right. Um, a, Which a, a, yeah, a phrase I hadn't even heard or a word I hadn't even heard until probably a year ago. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, you know, that's a somebody that knows a lot more about it could come along and shoot all kind of holes in everything I just said about the history of it. But I only say all that to say there is an actual history to it. It is a real thing. And so when Christians adopt terms and start throwing them around without really knowing what they're talking about, uh, they don't do any good. Y'all will recall that before they adopted cultural Marxism, they were calling everything social gospel, <laughs> you know, as it relates to this subject. Oh, social gospel, social gospel, social gospel. I can't tell you how many conversations I had. Guys, you understand the social gospel is a real thing. You know, go study early 20th century church history. <laughs> you know, the social gospel is a real thing. And, and talking about race, talking about uh, biblical justice, et cetera, is, is not the social gospel. You know, those are implications of the gospel, but it's not the social gospel. And so somewhere along the way, they've, they've shifted that terminology from social gospel to cultural Marxism, but it's the same people making the same arguments uh, and lumping other Christians, I say, in a very bad faith effort into this big, big well, bucket that they don't well, belong and you in. You can draw that line all the way back. I mean, I mean, the way that I got into caring about these issues was, you know, from doing street ministry, but then also, you know, pastoring in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the birthplace of the civil rights movement and exploring these things. And how did the church fail on this? I wrote a book about it that addresses all these things that well, you wrote a book. I did. That's <laughs> something I put in, uh, in his notes. If you, um, if you want to, but, um, <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, it's actually something you can study and it's actually something you can trace exactly what you said, Stuart. I mean, these are real things. These are real movements that happen. And, and you had, you know, uh, you know, you know, fundamentalist uh, segregationist Christians in 1950s, you know, calling anyone who wanted to tear down or to oppose Jim Crow, calling them communists. Yep. Right? And, 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 you know, trying to, to delegitimize any type of gospel oriented movement to say that racism and segregation, Jim Crow was wrong. And, 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 and they had to fight that then. And, it, and, and it's the same, it's the same strain. It's the same line of argumentation. And if you're going to make this accusation, you really need to actually document and put something together that makes sense instead of just saying, well, because somebody said this and now you're talking about biblical or, you know, you're talking about justice at all. 
and then I'm using the modifier biblical, then that means that you're in line with some type of conspiracy. And, and it really disregards people and their journeys and what they go through and how they learn things and how they study scripture in the context of a ministry setting. And they realize that, hey, these are real things that actually affect real people. And Jesus speaks to it. So as we share the gospel, as we lead people to Christ, let's also care about the whole life of people and community. And, um, you know, it's just a lot of minimization of, of good ministry that's actually taking place in our, in our country. Yeah, language has a way of uh, making things difficult because in these sorts of back and forth style conversations, two words that get bantered about and are actually used as cudgels against each other is biblical and gospel. Mm-hmm. So to the degree that even in our even uh, a couple of times as we've had this conversation, uh, the word biblical has been used. And while I really don't think that I'll have to go back and listen, but I, I don't think that it's being used in such a way as to say, well, you know, the four of us have the biblical view. It's to say that it it the source of our epistemology, that is how we're kind of understanding things we're taking our cue from the Bible. So when we're talking about justice, we're actually taking it from the scriptures and not from uh, another philosophical stream. And, and the other is gospel. And I mean, I kind of got a little bit concerned uh, quite a few years ago when everybody started using the gospel to describe everything they were doing. And so you've got it, it, you know, it's gospel preaching, it's gospel evangelism, it's the gospel you know, Lifeway, the gospel project, you know, uh, together for the gospel, the gospel coalition. And even in the titular moments where those things are used as uh, particular identifiers by those who put them together, they also serve the opposite, that if you don't see the gospel the way they do, so, for instance, on the spectrum, we've talked about it's, you know, gospel, no social action, and, and, and it's all social action, and that is the gospel, and there's, you know, points along the spectrum in between. Gospel becomes really a, rendered ineffective, and it really is used against brothers and sisters as if to say, well, you don't have the gospel. You, you, you know, that's not the true gospel. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember sitting with a, a fellow a, a bit older than I one time years ago as a young pastor, and and it was like, was, you know, was that a gospel presentation? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What, like, what, what do you mean? You know, what are you trying to draw out? And I think that that's kind of what, what's been done with those two words that they've been used in, in this conversation. So, you know, we've, we've mentioned uh, folks. And so you get a guy like Anthony Bradley, uh, who writes a piece and uh, Tom Askell responds to the piece. When you've got, when you've got, this back and forth. And as you guys have described how, how detrimental it is to label somebody um, virtually using a straw man uh, to then pick it apart. And then you're unresponsive. That's the thing, Alan, you mentioned a, a while ago. I'm Marty, Marty too, that, you know, you, you ask questions, you draw attention, you say who, and you get nobody. It reminds me of pastoring, and someone comes to the office and says, well, several people, or many people, or a few people, you know, that family's ubiquitous. There are those folks in every congregation in the world, no matter the denomination. It becomes the argument. Well, there are a few of us. I didn't know you had a last name, a few. I mean, everybody, there's a few of everything, and it becomes kind of this, um, uh, you know, ambiguous, silent sort of thing. And, and when you put something out there and you don't respond to it. Well, the, the same guy who did the, uh, 
tweet last week uh, asserting that there were people who made similar arguments about social justice and LBGTQ issues. Um, I asked him to name names. And so he was like, well, you can go to my website and search and find all kind of content. Yes. Here's two. Go watch Matt, my videos. Yeah. Yeah. Here's two, Matt Chandler and David Platt. And so, I, I mean, I already had in my mind the, the process of changing your position on any position is essentially the same if you're thinking through new evidence, uh, new writers, and all that kind of stuff. If you change from Ford to Chevrolet, it's the same basic process of assimilating information. Your experience is how you process all that. So it it it, it wasn't the problem of him saying uh, those processes are the same. It was he claimed that there were people. Well, I knew that Matt Chandler was already on the blacklist from some of these guys because of comments that he made about racial reconciliation. But David Platt, I mean, come on. <laughs> There's not a thing that David Platt could say in his sleep after having the worst meal of his life that included all kinds of spoiled food that would get him anywhere close to that kind of thing. And so I ended up having to block the dude because he just got really upset with me or whatever. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right he just, uh, the conversation was going nowhere. So I'm locked. Let me say it that way. It's that kind of, it's that kind of uh, rhetoric where you, you start with a presupposition and then you affirm your own presupposition. And then anybody who doesn't line up with your presupposition becomes suspect. And then you bolster your argument against them in the same way that you created your own position by presupposition after presupposition. And any argument they give you back isn't really a response. It's just an affirmation to person A that they're really in the wrong. And every argument they use confirms how wrong they are. And so it, it really becomes difficult to engage with folks like that because there's not a basis of, of fact, or at least for understanding facts, that you can agree to. And everything becomes why you're more wrong. And so after a while, it just doesn't become worth it. Well, and it's, it's not even about shepherding or protecting the church. I mean, that's the irony, right? Because it's this vague accusation that people read and they say, is that me? Are you talking about, who are you talking about? And then you ask and there's no response. And you ask for examples. Well, how do we know exactly what you mean by this? Like even that social justice statement, like I read it, I didn't even know who they were targeting. I didn't even know exactly what, so how do you even correct from that? But right? say those, it, it says in the introduction, like, there, there are those among us who are our friends that we're, you know, we feel the need to correct or something like that. Well, that's the not closest, a private conversation. The closest, right? that the, the closest yeah. there's ever been was at that, that Shepherds Conference panel when Phil Johnson said, well, you know, what, how far apart are we on these issues? And Mark Dever or, or Al Mohler said, maybe it was Mark Dever said, how far apart are we from you or how far apart are we from each other? I mean, right. that's the closest that anybody's ever come to. Here's three guys right here that we disagree and y'all are wrong. Now tell us why. And, 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 and he wouldn't answer. And we still didn't get anything specific. And so that's as close as we've gotten to any type of specific confrontation. And everyone leaves there going, we still know what you're talking about. So it's like almost, I mean, it's a crusade that, you know, that's taking place. And if it really was for the protection of the church, then you would have specifics so that people could correct, right? So like I read these things and these are guys that I respect and that I've known. And when I first started reading the critique, I'm, I'm examining myself. I'm like, okay, is there anything that I've bought into I shouldn't have or anything I'm saying? And I'm going back and examining and, and all that. And I still don't know what they're talking about. I still don't know what's specific. And I'm not asking, you know, for, for specific critique, but, but it's, it's just kind of this general accusation, and categorization that takes place. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that comes from the Lord. I really don't. So. 
you know, uh, here's another plug for uncommentary, but, uh, you know, back in, I guess it was season, was it season one that to be the, the only season that's online, brother? It's the only okay. season that's online. Uh, and I'll book. let you, I'll book. let you, uh, work, work with his last name. I'm just going to call him Tabidi. Yeah, uh, there it is, him. But, uh, that to me, that was, everybody needs to hear that one. If you haven't listened to that one, go listen to that one. Uh, his definition of justice cuts the legs out from under these arguments against. Uh, against him or others like Eric Mason or others who would be uh, coming at justice from a biblical perspective. Uh, his definition cuts the legs out from under that. Things that you guys brought up in your conversation cuts the legs out from under that. Um, he specifically mentioned, you know, going back to the whole slippery slope thing. And I bring that up because at that Shepherds Conference Q&A, that was just, that was the resounding theme, you know, or fighting the constant downgrade, whether it's Rick Warren or, uh, people who practice tongues or social justice warriors, whatever, there's always a constant downgrade. It's always a downgrade. You know, so I, I bring back up the, uh, that slippery slope argument, but he cuts the legs out from under that too, because uh, he specifically addresses some of these issues. He says, look, uh, no one here is arguing for uh, gay marriage on the basis of uh, the biblical text. But what we are doing is we're looking at the biblical text to inform our response in these other categories. Uh, and any, on the issue of abortion, he was excellent as well, which is, you know, kind of their favorite. Well, if you're for social justice, what about abortion? Uh, so everything he said was biblical and just cuts the legs right out from under this caricature uh, that gets that gets drawn uh, of these guys. I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, and let me add something to that, because, you know, this is the work that I do in Montgomery where I reclaim the civil rights movement. And I reattach it back to the African-American church. And it was a biblical movement. It was led by Christians who were responding to what scripture said. And the attack against the civil rights movement years ago by fundamentalist white Christians was that this was communism. Because they saw things happening in Africa and other places where colonialization, you know, where all of the colonies were getting their freedom and they were afraid of, of, of race wars and unrest. And so they assumed this was a communist plot. And, and, and if we go all the way back to that, if we assume that, that you know, any type of protest... This is what King was talking about in Letter from Birmingham Jail, you know, to the white moderate, you know, Christians, that any assumption of anyone asking for justice, that being something unbiblical or communist or some type of a plot to create social unrest, when that's your starting point, then every other thing that happens can be can be associated with anybody saying that racism is wrong. Like you can tie it all together. And, and, and I think this gets back to how long do we have to keep repenting for racism? People ask that question. Well, if the racist tropes keep coming up again and again in your argumentation, even you don't even mean for it to, you're not even consciously doing it. But if that fundamental perspective that existed opposing the civil rights movement still keeps on moving forward in a lot of the way people do argumentation, then maybe we need to look at some foundational issues. I'm not, I'm not saying anybody is, is actively trying to be a racist. I don't mean that at all. I want to be explicit on that. I'm talking about the way the arguments are used. And, and that's, I think, something that's happening. Because we don't go back. We don't, we don't explore what went wrong in the past and how, how our arguments were made. Well, I think, I think you, you know, Marty uh, mentioned a while ago that, you know, when someone is changing their position or, you know, their automobile and there are some accompanying, you know, things that you, you, you have to discover and embrace or, or you're looking at facts and you're trying to make a decision, 
I, I think one of the elements that is so difficult uh, is that we are so unaware of our emotional attachments to the way things are that that's stronger than any set of facts that can be laid in front of us. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. And, and you know, here someone's going to say, well, what are, what are four white guys doing talking about justice? Uh, and I'm going to hearken back to um, Dr. Barbara Holmes that, that I sat and listened to who reminisced on her involvement in an experience of the civil rights movement and a gentleman sat next to me, <clears throat> a white gentleman, a little bit older. And he said, I-, I need you to come to my congregation so that you can kind of tell them about this. And she looked square at him and said, no, you need to tell your congregation. And I think that's part of the problem. So really what happens that shows up to me uh, it, that these underpinnings that you're describing, Alan, is that when you, let's take you, uh, mentioned to someone that there are some issues of race uh, structurally. There are some argumentation that's used that actually ha- are rooted in uh, former uh, arguments in actual support of slavery. And then we say, well, look at that Anthony Bradley or, or look at Eric, Ma-. you know, we, we find some a person of color who's making the argument we want to make and we say, see, well, that's well and good. But in the end, we just are using them in much the same way. And what happens is, is, some of us are too lazy to go find out how that works. So Marty mentioned intersectionality. And I thought for just a minute, um, we, we could um, try to despoil that idea because what, what's going on and what's at work there is um, we're, we're talking about the way to describe the intersections of human experiences. And somewhere along the way that actually got converted into um, well, you've got an agenda. Well, listen, if, if observation from James Cone about the cross, viewing it through the lens of the lynching tree, stirred Fleming Rutledge to have regrets about finishing her book on the crucifixion, having not read that, <clears throat> is pretty powerful. And what she's saying is, is I, I, should, I wish I could have included that perspective. She wasn't saying, well, listen, I think I, I, you know, I wish I wish I had just followed James Cone. She's saying, here's another person. I was wrong because I didn't uh, it, or I was wrong because I'm not a black male theologian. Exactly. Exactly. So I think I think what happens is, is, is under this umbrella of cultural Marxism, you get a, a, a series of underlying um, dismissals. As to uh, critiques that are available. And we're really happy if we happen to be Reformed Baptist, to love Reformed Baptist critiques of the church. But don't you let anybody else critique the church. We could well, never I, abide any leftist critique of the church, because if after all, the, all, if all, the, if all the critiques have to come from within, then Semper Reformanda isn't going to happen very often. Oh, not at all. Well, and the other thing about it, too, that you're saying, Todd, is that what they don't want is they don't want various groups to critique and to come together to claim power and to try to grab power for themselves. That's what it really is about because they're trying to keep power for themselves. I mean, it's like they're doing the same thing in a sense that they're critiquing um, others trying to do because, you know, you know, well, what do they want? What do they want to grab? You know, what do they want from us? Which, which is my, which has been my contention for a long time that this isn't about, Primarily racism or or uh, different groups. Uh, this is White House calling. Yeah, this is about um, you know trying to protect your way of life and using theology and everything else to just protect yourself. You know? Yeah. Well, it is interesting. 
ahead, Simon. What you say, Alan's interesting there, um, because you know that was that's a big uh, that's a that's a key issue for uh, well, which is now deceased, but uh, he and Land and these others. A big issue for them was we we want to take our society back to the 1950s. The 1950s is the last time we truly recognized the Judeo-Christian ethic at work uh, in in our culture. And so uh, it, I guess it shouldn't be surprising then when these folks who are using some of the same terminology uh, almost take a protection. We're going to protect uh, this institution as we knew it before. So we're going to build a wall against these, these other voices uh, because they're challenging our our recollection, perhaps you could say, or, or our reminiscence of a, of a culture, in this case, a church culture that probably never really existed in the first place, except in people's memories and in their minds. But it's just interesting. They, they, they're using the same people who are using the language of cultural Marxism are taking that same mentality into the church that these other political commentators use for the culture at large, you know, and that's, we're going to protect it. And we're, we're going to go back to a time when we recognize it, you know, which Maybe isn't as directly a way of saying what Alan said. It's about power, uh, but maybe it comes at it from a different direction. Yeah, and that may be a good uh, point to kind of bring this hour. I don't know what your schedules are, but uh, it certainly gives us more to talk about. Um, because after all, Alan just went postmodern when he uh, introduced Foucault into the equation yeah. that everything's a will that you know everything's about power and I, I i actually think he's right about that but we would you know again you know, raising that issue then becomes you know um a difficult thing because we don't like critique um really from the outside yeah and just to go back to a biblical perspective i mean jesus talks about this when he says if you try to save your life you'll lose it if yeah. you lose your life for me you'll save it and so you know we don't have to go to Foucault to look at that you know i mean i mean this is the message of the cross Right, I was being facetious there. No, no, I know because you. Because postmodern becomes another bogeyman, just right. like yeah, of course, just like intersectionality, just like communism. You know, these become things that just become tools used to say, yeah. "Oh, listen to those guys." I knew all along, Alan was a secret postmodern philosopher. You know, what I mean, and and all of a sudden now it can be uh, posted on some um, blog, mm -hmm. and now you just should dismiss these four nobodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or Alan didn't know. Alan didn't know he was a secret postmodern. Oh, that's yeah, that's, you know, he didn't have that gnostic right word of knowledge right there. That's right. the key, right? And this is where pop philosophy really, you know, like knowing a little bit to be dangerous, right? And so you you think you're picking up on what somebody's saying when in reality, I'm working from the temptations of Jesus and the way he was offered power and how he denied that so that he could actually follow the father. And I'm thinking about the cross and the theology of the cross. That's actually what I'm working from as I do this critique, not having been influenced by, you know, leftist Hollywood or something, you know? So, you know, it's like people know just a little bit and then they, and that's where when you get an accusation without any type of specificity and giving people a chance to respond, that is not biblical ministry. And I mean, it's biblical not Christian. Like, it's not Christian. It's not right. Christian okay. at all, period. I don't care how you read the Bible. It's not Christian. So, right. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you for your, uh, your time. And, uh, we ought to try to make this a little more regular. Um, after all, we're trying to steal market share from uh, someone else's, you know, podcast or blog. And um, so we'll put it in the notes to uh, tap when heaven and earth collide. Yeah. 
uh, one of the co-sponsors for this uh, podcast, along with Uncommentary. Uh, right. And and uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 get the word out, and we'll we'll do this again. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we've uh, maybe we've sufficiently addressed the people coming at this from a negative background. Maybe we could get together one time and talk about from the positive. You know, what does Scripture actually say? Mm-hmm. Dude, you can't, these, you can't offer definitions and actual workable stuff that that totally dis- discredits you and disallows you from being able to make random accusations. You got to stop. Well, well, then, well, then, then that's then that settles it. That's part two. So we'll call <laughs> that's part one, and that's part two. So, <laughs> yeah, and that's you know, I mean, for me, I've, I've been just for several years now. Luther's theology of the cross versus the theology of glory, and mm-hmm. that has been that has shaped me so much and has helped helped me navigate these issues so well. You know, and and I think that's a lot of what we're what, what we're bumping up against with all this. You know. And Alan finished with, you know, well, you know, we're always going to have another episode of Pathological and we won't be, a, it'll be a few weeks before we finish up or we bring you part two of this conversation ahead. I've got a, a interview with uh, David Zoll on his new book, Seculosity. Going to interview my friend Scott Scrivener on a memoir, a theological memoir he produced. Going to have uh, my mentor, uh, Rick Davis on, and we're going to talk about the ministry that he's president of called Reentry, and we're going to tout his uh, the the podcast his group puts out. So there's um, lots to look forward to. Uh, we're going to have some uh, um, links in the show notes uh, to uh, Alan's book When Heaven and Earth Collide, to Marty's podcast, the Uncommentary Podcast. And a couple of the articles that uh, we had read in preparation or that stirred the conversation we just had. So that that may help you along the way as you go back and uh, either listen again or you look at them before you've listened to this podcast because you've read the blog post. So in the meantime, uh, we want to thank you for listening and invite you to share the podcast. We'd love a rating and review on iTunes. You have to log in, leave a four or five-star review, leave a... a, uh, sentence or two uh, review it helps us get found even though we've been doing this now for a little while it's just the way the algorithm works and um, if you've got a, a friend in, in pastoral ministry or you've got folks lay folks who are involved uh, in pastoral work in their churches uh, point them to pathological uh, we're going to have a variety of guests from different perspectives and uh, have conversations about the intersection of life faith and thinking theologically so until the next time this has been todd littleton with pathological Peace.